Hi everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal. I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. So today we have a very, very special podcast. In fact, we're going to split it over two um, uh, parts, a part one and part two. And, um, and we have our special guest, uh, Nathan Furr, who obviously helps us out with the Future Leaders Network. So Nathan, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's uh, always a real pleasure to uh, to have you uh, on the podcast and our event, and certainly um, uh, we'll have quite a few things coming up in the coming uh, in the coming months. We're very excited about in uh, hopefully in September and uh, and in November. But uh, um, Nathan, uh, the purpose of this podcast is really we've got a huge amount of uncertainty, you know, in the macroeconomy. Uh, many people have listened to this podcast kind of wondering what's going on are we are we going to have inflation now we're worried about recession we've got wars we've got you know all of this um covid is still hanging around in certainly some places we've got huge amounts of uncertainty um uh, you know around the world and of course as it happens um in fact we had a we had an early preview of your work on the upside of uncertainty uh, back in uh, the uh, January 2020, which uh, just before COVID hit, uh, you were obviously very pressing at the time. Uh, but maybe you can just take us through the, this, this great history of uh, the upside of uncertainty. Yeah, it was, uh, it's always fun to be right, you know, and you, <laughs> you talk about uncertainty in January 2020. Um, so, um, Really, this book uh, we've written called "The Upside of Uncertainty" is is actually a very uh, a project with a very long history. So we started it well over a decade ago, and it really arose out of most of my work is really asking the question: How does innovation happen? How does technology change the world? I've kind of interviewed some really interesting characters, but what I noticed is that to do anything new all of those individuals had to first face uncertainty and whether it was you know a, a well-known character like a jeff bezos or or maybe a less well-known character and and i struggle with that and so i was very curious about what are the ways that they learn to navigate uncertainty now that may sound like a very individual level question and it is because learning to navigate it is is a is an individual journey but it's set against a context of a much bigger question. And really my work from the very beginning, 20 plus years has been all about what are the tools for a world of uncertainty? And if we look at, say, for example, the World Uncertainty Index, which is put together by economists at Stanford and the IMF, they show a steady upward trend since the 1990s in uncertainty. And there's many other measures I could give, you know, empirical measures that show that the pace of change, the dynamism of uh, the market, the intensity of competition, the length of competitive advantage has all gotten more and more challenging. And so I really, as an individual, approach this from many different angles. I approach it from a strategy angle. I approach it from an innovation angle. And this book, The Upside of Uncertainty, really approach it from the angle of an individual leader or, or an individual person just trying to live in a world that has become more dynamic and more uncertain. And I think, you know, I think before the pandemic, if I was totally honest, the emphasis was more on the uncertainty that one chooses. Say when you start a new career, you move to a new geography, you do something new, you, you chose to step into the unknown. And so it was more about the courage 
to step into the unknown in that circumstance. But what the pandemic showed us all very keenly is that it's not just the uncertainty we choose that matters. It's also the unplanned uncertainty that happens to us. So what do we learn about how to navigate that well? And so I would say the book is really equal parts. Uh, how do we navigate planned and unplanned uncertainty? So w- one of the topics, I guess, is um, just um, kind of define uh, uncertainty. And, you know, we always think of uncertainty in many different ways. There's obviously risk, there's complexity um, when it comes to uncertainty. Um you know, maybe you can just sort of describe what does uncertainty actually mean? And, and I will, and I'm, I'm going to try. I mean, I know uh, most of many of your listeners are in the investment world. So I'm, I'm really going to try to span both worlds, but I really want to speak to your listeners as, as individuals because uh, we learn to navigate uncertainty at an individual level, and you need to be able to lead people through that to uh, be able to navigate it well. So let me, though, first address this more conceptual issue. What in the world is uncertainty, really? And, and let me separate that up. Many of you may have heard VUCA, uh, which is short for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. So what really am I talking about? Uh, let me say that complexity is, uh, the way we define that is the number of nodes in a system and the number of connections between those nodes in a system. So if you picture, you know, dots on a page and the number of lines between each of those dots, a complex system is where there's a lot of dots and a lot of connections. And what makes that circumstance challenging is you can change one variable, but you don't know how that's going to ripple through the system because of all those interconnections. That's a little different than uncertainty, although certainly that that complexity can create uncertainty. Uh, The way I I think about uncertainty is maybe best demonstrated by uh, the words and thinking of a very important 20th century economist, Frank Knight. He very cleanly differentiated between risk and uncertainty and argued they were fundamentally different in terms of the tactics to navigate them. He argued that risk is where you know the variables and you know the probability distribution. You just don't know what the outcome or expected value will be. So think of rolling dice, two dice. If you roll two dice, you know you're going to get between two and 12. You just don't know which number you're going to get. You even know the probability of getting a six or seven, but you just don't know which one's going to come out. Whereas uncertainty is a circumstance where you may not know the probability distribution. You you may not even know the variables involved. And then the kind of most extreme version of uncertainty, which is a really a lack of information, it would be ambiguity where you may not even have the mental model to think about the situation. So I'm really concerned with that, with the uncertainty and ambiguity. We don't know the variables. We don't know the probability distribution. We may not even have the right way of thinking about it. And that's, I guess, where certainly from a financial market, emotions come, right? So people often um, fall into that trap of, of you know, ignoring all of the, the, the probability distributions and all that stuff because the emotions just kind of take over and then it's all about, you know, they, they, I guess they create their own uncertainty in that, in that, in that uh, example. Well, yeah, here's the thing, Moses. This is why this topic about uncertainty is so critical because what we know is when we have low skills, we tend to maladapt. So there's a large set of 
kind of misbehaviors that occur in uncertainty. So, for example, threat rigidity is a very well-documented one where we tend to become, as individuals or organizations, when we face a threat, we become rigid. We tend to narrow down our experimentation, try to take more control of resources. You know, in an investment world, we might engage in kind of panic selling or, you know, kind of irrational behaviors. So what we need in a world of uncertainty is we need skills, we need capabilities. Now, the challenge for me was that I, I didn't have those. I hadn't learned them in school and I hadn't learned them from my parents. And maybe you had better parents and better schools than I did, but I was really wanting to know because I saw these innovators, like, you know, some of the, I did interview, you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Indra Nui and some of these very famous people. Um, but I wanted to know, how do I get to the possibility? Because they had to go through uncertainty to get to the possibility. So I went out and I looked at the research and there's research in fields with names like ambiguity tolerance, uncertainty avoidance, resilience. And what that clearly showed is that people learned this. But what the gap was, was how. Again, I felt hungry afterwards. I was like, but I want to know how I get better. So really what we did in our work was to ask the tools, what are the tools that help us develop what we could call uncertainty ability, which is the ability to navigate the unknown without freaking out and falling into those behavioral traps that you mentioned. And, and this is important because I think we all experienced during the pandemic, or at least observed, uh, organizations where the leaders did not have any of this uncertainty ability. And they, they created an immense amount of distress that led to a lot of unproductive behavior, people ruminating about what's going to happen next instead of actually doing productive work. Uh, and, and I just think that stands in stark contrast to some, you know, for example, we, we looked at some organizations that actually have started to ask, how do we develop this ability? So they actually hire for uncertainty ability. Or I spoke with the um, CEO of a fashion group, and he talked very much, very openly about the importance of the ability to navigate uncertainty and how he tried to build that and coach that in his teams. And he credited that ability to the reason for their success in growing 3x in a very crowded competitive market. And again, it's because why? Because they were comfortable with asking questions uh, uh, that let them see the world in a new way and then step into the unknown, take a risk, do something different. And that was that like critical to their success in kind of remaking, reinventing their, their, their performance. So again, you hear me dancing between individual level and organization level, but I think this is, there's a tie there that is really important. How how to how does that fit into obviously some of your um, uh, frameworks over the past with respect to the um, uh, to you know, trying small experiments and seeing how they get on and if they don't work you close them down you know blue management if I recall correctly in in some of your earlier work or earlier presentations um, um, how does that fit within that aspects here you're talking about uh creating and innovating in smaller experiments and, and not really taking big risks if you like uh in that in that respect how does that compare with with you know um 
uh, changing and and walking into that uncertainty. Yeah, yeah. So actually, the kind of secret to me, if you wanted to know, like you know, what really is driving Nathan is a, a simple question, which is. I can see many drivers of uncertainty in the world around us. The biggest is probably technology, which has lowered the barriers to create, create, connect, interact, and transact so that today it's easier than ever to invent something new, to bring something new to market, to create a business around it, to communicate around it. And that means the waters have become choppy and, and, and turbulent, but, but turbulent because of really opportunity, right? And the same could be said, uh, you know, the drivers to me are like education. What do we know about innovation? It's really uh, new ideas come about through recombination. So the more people who are educated and the more people who participate, the more ideas we're going to get. So to me, I, I tend to have a fairly optimistic view that in the long run, it's really the uncertainty is tied to this increase in possibility. But but the thesis for me is very simple. In that world of uncertainty, I believe we need additional tools. So yeah, I'm, you know, I did my PhD at Stanford. Uh, I have an MBA. Of course, I learned you know, strategy fr frameworks like Porter's Five Forces or, or the resource-based view. And, and all of these are nice tools to describe a very certain world. But I can tell you when you're doing something new, brand new, you don't know if anybody wants to pay for it. If there's a business model there, Porter's Five Forces isn't that important. What's really important is how do I discover where the value is? Doesn't mean Porter's Five Forces won't ever be important. I'm just saying that in conditions of uncertainty, we need different sets of tools. So my other work, all of my work is really trying to answer that question. So for example, I wrote a book called The Innovator's Method. So uh, you were talking about that when we talk about red versus blue ways of working. That's really, red is classical management. Blue is more entrepreneurial management. Said differently, what are the tools to help us unpack the uncertainty of an innovation? How do we know whether an idea is any good? I wrote another book called Leading Transformation, which was really about how do we get people to see distant and uncertain opportunities and believe it's possible to get there. Uh, Harvard published another book called Innovation Capital, which was really about how do we get people to believe and support uncertain new ideas. And, and so you can just see, like, I'm kind of like, and I've written, by the way, uh, academic papers, which are about how, what are the, what does strategy mean in an uncertain environment? And so instead of Porter's Five Forces and, and resource-based, we talk about the role of simple rules or heuristics for guiding action. And how do you imagine what a market could or an industry could be, and then bring the actors together around that potential industry. And so really every kind of academic paper I've written and every practitioner book is different ways of saying, what are the tools and tactics for a world of uncertainty? And, and this book, The Upside of Uncertainty, is really more as an individual, how do I get comfortable? Because what, what do I see in big companies all the time? I see them call for innovation, maybe even disruptive innovation, but then they don't want any risk in it. They want it like, you know, well, we don't want to take any risks. And I'm like, well, what did you think was going to happen? That it's impossible for you to get any innovation without taking on any risks. If it was risk-free, somebody would already have grabbed it and done it and scaled it and executed it to death. Like, like you, if you want change, innovation, growth, transformation, you've got to learn how to be comfortable and lead through the uncertainty. 
Um, absolutely fascinating. So uh, you talked about the um, individualism uh, around uh, uncertainty. You know, what are the tools that one needs to, to use to get through that? Yeah, so uh, we really, in the upside of uncertainty, pulled together all the available empirical research we could find, but there were huge gaps. So we performed many interviews. And again, I've been doing these for for many years. And and we came up with more than 30 tools uh, to navigate uncertainty. That's a lot, right? So how do we even begin to wrap our heads around that? So we, we use this metaphor of the first aid cross. So this symbol of help when you need it. We use this metaphor of the first aid cross uh, to organize the tools to help you build your uncertainty ability. So the first aid cross has four arms. Uh, there's kind of the north-south axis, which is a little more thinking oriented. So the, the first category of things to do is to reframe the uncertainty from a source of loss to a possibility or a gain helps you re-see it and rethink it. At the other end of that is this idea of sustaining yourself, which is that in your organization that you will face setbacks. Things will go different than expected. So how do you sustain yourself in the organization through obstacles, through setbacks? And then the other axis is this east-west axis of more action-oriented tools. So we talk there about priming. Think about how you prime a wall before you paint so that the paint sticks well, or you prime a pump so the water comes out. It's things you can do to prepare so that when uncertainty happens, you're you're able to handle with greater resilience. And then uh, on the other end, how to take action or do, uh, the do tools, uh, ways we can take action that lead to a higher, uh, greater probability of, a, of an outcome we would like. So again, the four tools are uh, reframe, prime, do, and sustain. So, uh, um, very interesting. So, reframe. Um, what uh, you know? What are we looking at when you're maybe some examples around that reframing idea? So, I would say the first and most important category of things to do is reframing. So, um, that is. It sounds very soft and fuzzy, but actually there's a very uh, deep body of evidence in behavioral economics and psychology that shows that the way we describe something shapes how we uh, think, decide, and act. So one of the iconic studies in this area was done by Kahneman and Tversky. Uh, They won the Nobel Prize for their work. And what they showed is that people are loss-averse and gain-seeking. So the The famous study was there was a disease and they give people two treatments, one with a 5% chance of failure, the other with a 95% chance of success. I'm oversimplifying it a little bit. But what you find is everybody wants 95% chance of success because we are wired to avoid losses, even though those two treatments are identically identical, statistically speaking. So here's the problem with uncertainty. For most of us, it's wired, we're wired to see it as a loss. And so it leads us to be frantic and anxious and to lock up. But if we can reframe it in terms of the potential possibility, we become much more agile and able to navigate it. So let me give you some simple examples. Think about the pandemic. You probably saw there were leaders out there who said things like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. Uh, I, I literally saw leaders say, this is worse than the Great Depression. 
even though it may have only been true in terms of a very narrow window of uh, unemployment, say in the U.S., and not true on many other dimensions. But uh, what happens in those organizations? Uh, those are people freak out, and we know there's evidence to show that the mental and emotional state of top leaders cascades down through the organization. Contrast that. One of the industries the most negatively affected by COVID-19. And what is the CEO's response? What does he say? Does he say this is worse than the Great Depression? No. His response is, this is our moment. Great companies are forged in moments of crisis. This is our chance to show that we're a great company, not some snowflake of the internet. Now, when I describe it to you that way, I mean, my guess is you're already feeling a little bit stirred up. Now, if you think, oh, Nathan, that's a nice anecdotal example, you know, you showed us some behavioral economics research and a nice story of a CEO saying nice things. I can tell you, we have uh, many empirical studies in my field showing that, say, when a company is faced with a disruption, potential disruption, is it better to frame it in terms of the threat or in terms of the opportunity? Well, same effect here. Turns out it's better to frame it in terms of the opportunity. We just see evidence of it all over the place. And, and so we, we talk about many tools in there uh, to help leaders reframe uh, uncertain things in terms of opportunity, to see new possibilities. And, you know, if you'd allow me, I'd just love to share with you one of my favorite tools is uh, this idea of what we call finite versus infinite games. So let me say something heretical to uh, you know an audience that's very uh, investment focused. So uh, finite versus infinite games is actually an idea that comes from a professor at NYU. His name was James Cars, and basically what he argued is there's two ways of seeing the world. One is we see the purpose of the game of life is winning, and that's the finite game, and we see the role roles and rules and boundaries of the game is fixed. And uncertainty is very unnerving because it, it presents a challenge to us winning the game. But, but he proposed that there's a way to see the world as an infinite game where the goal isn't as much to win. Winning's good. We like that. Doing well is good. We like that. Uh, but it's really to have fun playing the game, to keep game, the, the game going. And, and we see the roles and the rules and the boundaries as pliable, as something to play with as much as the game itself. And I think that perspective on the world and life can really help you see uh, your world in different ways, can be so like I use this tool all the time myself when I go into a challenging situation and I say, what's the infinite game I could play here? How do I spin it? But maybe since, uh, <clears throat> since you, know, uh, you know, right now while we're talking, the, the Tour de France is happening. And uh, I think a good concrete illustration of this principle comes from a very famous race in the Tour de France. It was between uh, Jean Jacques Antille and Raymond Poulidor. So Jacques, Jacques Antille was... Uh, favored to win that particular Tour de France. Uh, uh, he had won four in the past. He was known as a real machine, especially on the time trials. He was just, he was just very robotic and, and, and just an extreme executor. 
And he was racing against Raymond Pouldor, who people kind of described as the wholehearted son of the soil, hadn't run any races, but they were in this really harrowing leg of the Tour de France called the Puy de Dome. It's 10 kilometers of just jagged peaks up and down. People describe it like, you know, the, an upturned saw. And, and normally when racers ride, they ride one behind the other to draft and save energy. But for 10 kilometers, Anctil and Pouldor just raced shoulder to shoulder. I mean, they were actually ramming into each other at points, neither wanting to concede an inch to the other. And they raced like this for 10 straight kilometers. And finally, at the last moment, Pouldor, the wholehearted son of the soil, breaks free, pulls forward, and wins that segment of the race. And everybody just freaks out and just is going crazy because this is like one of the greatest kind of you know, events in the whole history of the race. But Poulidor loses the Tour de France because Anctil makes up time in other legs of the game. And you know what? Poulidor races 14 times and never wins. They call him the eternal second. But I'll tell you something about Poulidor and Anctil. Nobody cares about Anctil. Poulidor is one of the most, if not the most beloved rider that has ever ridden. People have written dissertations. More articles have been written about Poulidor, the eternal second, than any other writer. People absolutely loved him. Why? Well, I think it's well summarized by a a comment he made near the end of his career. And somebody had said to him, you know, Poulidor, you just, your head's in the clouds. You never took the race seriously enough. And he said, you know what? Maybe they're right because I never woke up in the morning asking focused on how do I win. I woke up in the morning excited that I got to race and that was enough for me. And you know what? Like who was more successful? Like people remember Poulidor. People love Poulidor. I guarantee Poulidor had more endorsements and more, you know, I'm sure more money in terms of because of that. But I just think it's a great illustration to really challenge our thinking about the way we see the world or the way we see our businesses. I mean, why is Patagonia uh, the so successful because that that founder, Yvonne Chouinard, he's a total infinite player. He totally challenges the game. And he said himself, he said, you know, hey, I learned early on in life, the best way to win is to invent the game rather than try to play the game. So anyway, that's a, you know, again, just to summarize, reframing is about reframing uncertainty, not in terms of what might be lost, but in terms of the opportunities. So uh, thanks, uh, Nathan. Uh, This is part one of the uh, podcast. Uh, We will um, listen to part two next week. uh, And again, we will be thinking about uncertainty possibilities.